You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning, vampires, religion, anti-Catholic sentiment, deals with the devil, and matters animal, vegetable, and mineral. If I had been so lucky as to have a steady brother who could talk to me as we are talking now to one another, who could give me good advice when he discovered I was airing, which is just the very flavor in which you I was comparing, my existence would have made a rather interesting idle, and I might have lived and died a very decent in the whittle. This particularly rapid, unintelligible patter isn't generally heard, and if it is, doesn't matter. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Upper writers back in Dysectorian For complicated music craft they were valedictorians When writing complex ditties they would rarely need a mulligan Their names were William Gilbert and his partner Arthur Sullivan But back before the duo offered forth their compositions The Gilbert name was much concerned with mystery and magicians From William Gilbert Sr. issued forth his fables whimsical Of Marvel's most enjoyable and morals unequivocal Hi all, welcome to What Mad Universe Uh the show where we talk about pulp and the origins of pop culture. Uh, today we're talking about uh, the Anominato, uh, Wizard of the Mountain, a uh, 1867 book by William Gilbert Sr., who is best known nowadays as the father of W.S. Gilbert, of Gilbert and Sullivan fame. Um, I am a big Gilbert and Sullivan fan from way back. Uh, um, I guess I got introduced to them by uh, the Animaniacs episode uh, that was based on all their songs. And also, I think later I watched the Simpsons, or I no, later I watched the Simpsons uh, episode where they um, they stop Sideshow Bob by, Bart stops Sideshow Bob by convincing him to sing the entire score from HMS Pinafore. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, after that, I started tracking down various things uh, that... The movie of Pirates of Penzance they made, which is I've mixed feelings on, but um, yeah, I've uh, never seen that one. I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I, it's, yeah. I mean, it's it's got some choices I disagree with, basically, in, <laughs> in how they present things. Fair um, enough. I, I'm I'm. It's funny. I'm almost. Uh, it's it's funny that there isn't like there. I guess there's that, but. There isn't really a big Gilbert and Sullivan movie. I mean, there's a movie about Gilbert and Sullivan, but there isn't a like a big adap- There isn't a big adaptation like even back no, in the old no. days, uh, which you no, think would be uh, natural. There's basically just uh, Pirates of Penzance and a parody called Pirate the Pirate Movie, which I haven't seen. That's apparently yeah. like a modernization or something. Right. Yes, I've heard of that. Um, but, but yeah, uh, yeah. 
Uh, they do appear in a lot of cartoons. Uh, mm-hmm. They're they've been public domain since the 1960s, I believe. So right. uh, pretty much every cartoon made since then has used uh, usually the Major General song, uh, which right. um, um, Adam did a uh, parody of at the top at the top of the show. Right. Um, and there's, um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one of the songs from the Mikado was recorded by a pop artist. I'm trying to think uh, who it was. Uh, Three Little Maids? Yeah, Three Little Maids. Yeah, I've seen that one sung and adapted a few. Maybe not a pop version, but... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That that one's that one appears a lot, too. Uh, yeah. Basically, the the big three of Gilbert and Sullivan are uh, Pirates of Penzance, HMS Pinafore, and the Mikado. Right. In, in terms of... Um, their impact on pop culture, though obviously other ones have varying degrees of success from, um, I think, really underrated, like Rudigore, and uh, down to, like, the Grand Duke, which nobody really likes. <laughs> um, yeah, I saw the... I actually only saw the Grand Duke once when I was six, so right. maybe I didn't give it a fair shake, but it is not well regarded. It's their last collaboration, I believe, so... right. They were not getting along. Yeah. And hadn't been for quite some time. Um, a guy named Arthur Sullivan, he really sucks, I don't like him. And I don't, yeah, he had to write, <laughs> he's, he's known, yeah, exactly. Well, I, yeah, I haven't seen, have you seen the Mike Lee movie they made, Topsy Turvy, uh, about it? Yeah, I saw that, uh, it's been a while, but I've seen it, yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so I don't know much about their life and, and uh, okay. interactions. It's basically just about the making of the Mikado. I'm not sure how accurate it is. I don't know, like, a lot of biographical information about them, but... Uh, um, it does cover a lot of, uh, from what I know, what sort of happened behind the scenes. And mm-hmm. uh, Gilbert was very uh, exacting about, um, like, he wanted things to be fairly accurate in terms of how the characters, how the actors acted on stage. Even though they're saying ridiculous things, and like in the Mikado, their names are literally like Nanki Poo and yeah, yeah. Pity Singh. Um, but uh, he wanted them, like, he actually got um, uh, uh, actual Japanese girls to show how to walk, to show the actors how to walk, that sort of thing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like, so they wouldn't do, like, uh, really exaggerated dance moves. They were just supposed to, you know, walk demurely and so forth. Right, right. Um, and Sullivan didn't? No, no, just, um, uh, like, he fought against the choreographer on that. Yeah. Yeah, um, Gil- Gilbert definitely seems like he was the incredibly uptight uh, perfectionist well, of the two. <laughs> yeah, well, Sullivan was to a degree because he thought this whole thing was a little bit beneath him, more than a little bit beneath him. Like, he didn't want to be remembered for comic operas. He wanted to do legitimate operas. He had a big one called Ivanhoe, which I haven't even listened to, but it's like mm. a serious opera. Um yeah, he he didn't really like being stuck typecast in the um, uh, you know, doing lighthearted comedies that don't. I mean, they have yeah. a lot of um, actually political messages in them. Uh, most of yeah, them, yeah, right. But uh, they're still not like they're they're very well, silly. Of course, yeah. But so he's the Jerry Lewis of his day, is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. Um, I, I mean, I think he did. Um, he, um, once again, going from topsy turvy. I, I don't know if this is true, but according to that movie, he uh, rejected one of uh, uh, Gilbert's ideas for a play, and um, uh, Gilbert had to go and 
write something else, and he came up with the Mikado, and Sullivan said, yeah, this is good, I'll do this. Okay. Was Sullivan sort of, um, he, was he sort of from a, a, a rich family? Was he a big, big shot? Is that? I don't know, but he was, a, he was knighted, so probably. Yeah. Like he was knighted while they were writing these songs, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, but like he was, he was like uh, respect more, or he was respectable. Which, not that, uh, yeah. not that Gilbert wasn't, but yeah. No, yeah, it's the irony that Gilbert is probably the reason we. I mean, nothing against the music, but it's the lyrics that everyone remembers with Gilbert and Sullivan uh, and how complicated they to, are. To be fair, that any collaborations they did with anybody else didn't work as well. Mm. Like it was them together that right. that made it. Like uh, Gilbert did other other plays earlier and and later i believe with other and i i saw one of them uh it was uh called the zoo i believe um and i don't remember anything about it even the plot so like that should tell you something <laughs> yeah okay fair enough yeah that that was a common thing it's the you know the stanley jack kirby factor um yeah though though both of those did other things yeah but that's just it the magic is when they work together or lennon mccartney if you like like again it's not that they didn't do other things but everything we remember them for is mostly the 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 collaboration that they yeah and i think more so even with gilbert and sullivan because yeah yeah exactly uh yeah that sometimes just happens and it and it's funny because it does sometimes seem to breed resentment between the two because it's like ah why do i need you to be a genius (laughs) why why does it always have to be you i think that was their relationship yeah that's that's how this show works i'm like ah why is (laughs) why am i always failing without phil curses i'll destroy him (laughs) <laughs> you yeah. do other stuff but um <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah i'm planning another podcast but it's destined to be a horrible failure because i'm taking myself <laughs> too seriously and phil's involved so um but yeah anyway uh it's it's it is so, funny uh, that as I, you say no no but i just want to say because as you say you're talking about oh we want to do a serious opera and it's like well gilbert and sullivan has like all the operas they're famous for have all kinds of commentary and significance and yeah. they've lasted the the test of time like it, it, immensely like clearly they had all kinds of it in fact if anything it's it's a good way to sneak in stuff that you could get away like there's stuff in gilbert and sullivan that might have been considered a little edgy at the time right if it had been presented yeah, yeah. seriously uh like even the the famous major general song is, is criticizing people who get in positions of power just by uh well indirectly but uh by knowing people basically. right yeah um because the major general um sings about how all his knowledge about all these topics right he towards the end he admits he doesn't know anything about tactics, weaponry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's just a complete, like his his military knowledge is uh, dates to the beginning of the century, and it was at the end of the century. So yeah, yeah. And, he, um, and they do that the same thing in uh, HMS Pinafore. The, uh, the yeah, yeah. The, guy the um, he sings e- even about. more so there. Yeah, there's an entire song about the uh, the leader of the the navy uh, has never actually been to sea before. <laughs> right. He's just because in the, he... he's just in a, the position because he knew the right people and he. He was a politician right. from a rotten borough, which was a thing that used to exist, where basically yeah. one person could vote for their member of parliament. Right, and the um, and then the gondoliers is is this whole explosion of politics in different ways. Yeah, and, yeah, that's about um, uh, democracy and stuff. It's been a while since I've seen that one, but yeah, they they dealt with a lot of issues, and um, right. it was usually about um, England, like English society, usually through the. <laughs> yes through the veil of something else like uh, the Mikado, uh, which has, you know, problematic, obviously. Um, 
but it's it's basically just about England, but through the lens of this right. sort of Japanese Orientalism. And it's also got the N-word in one of the songs, which uh, oh. is one of the few cases where I'm okay with them changing the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Um, There's also uh, one of... It's, um, it, specifically in the song referring to minstrel shows, but it's still, it's, yeah, don't use the N-word in your... No. Music. They um, must have the version I saw must have cut that out because I have. Oh seen yeah, it on they stage. they always cut that. that part out. Yeah, yeah. They they never use that. Uh, in fact, the list yeah. song which that's from is um, basically ends by saying you can add whatever you want to make it uh, relevant to you, to the time. So it's basically like the original lyrics basically say that. So really, they like he um, like Gilbert and Sullivan specifically wrote in, please alter this song. <laughs> as not not go. not in so many words. Uh, the task of filling up the blanks I'd rather leave to you, but it really doesn't matter whom you. Uh, but it really doesn't matter whom you put upon the list, for they'd none of them be missed. They'd none of them be missed. Huh. That. Oh, I see. Okay, so that's in the lyric, but it's. Yeah. But that. But he meant it as a stage direction as well, right? Is that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I. I mean that. That's what a lot of people interpret it as. So like, the the songs about you know annoying people that you put on the list so they get executed. But it's like right, right. Uh, like people who are irritating, basically. Yeah. Um, that is a very interesting because I, for for years I saw like I went with my family to see Gilbert and Sullivan at uh, at uh, the Stratford Music Festival, the Stratford uh, Theater Festival up in uh, in Ontario, and and they um, they would always add you know contemporary references and and goofs and things like that. And yeah, I, I saw it with a my, lot do. I'm, I'm I thought really with, a fan of that. Well, that anyway, it's just, it sounds like <laughs> that, that was something they encouraged. And it's true that some of it, I think kind of has to be in there because they, uh, because of the nature of the songs to a certain degree. But yeah, I, I mean, yeah. Enough, yeah. Uh, I, I'm not like, I'm not entirely against it. I just think a lot of people over rely on that and sure. change the songs a little too much. Fair enough. Because, you know, you're going for the, you know. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, no, no. You got to strike a balance. But, you know, it is. Yeah. It, it's it's also meant to get a laugh. And it's like, it's hard to get yeah, a huge true. laugh with like 120-year-old material. <laughs> like, like, yeah. It's still funny. Don't get yeah, me wrong. They're, they're actually really good at being funny despite all that time. But if you're going to make specific references, you know, you got to update them, obviously. So, yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. Um, Anyway, we haven't talked about the book yet. Well, there's a yeah. So I mean, obviously, the big thing with pop culture connection is the Gilbert and Sullivan thing. I did. Oh, I, I wanted to mention one other thing uh, that slightly ties it uh, to the podcast here. Um, Isaac Asimov actually wrote an entire story uh, about how he thought the ending of uh, the Sorcerer, which is one of their their shows, one of their lesser shows. But Asimov's theory was just that the intention for the ending was. Uh, was altered because it was too risque. Uh, so he wrote the story to kind of change it. And it was the idea that if I'm not mistaken, everyone takes a love potion and to, to cancel it out, they all have to get married because marriage will cancel out everyone being in love with each other like, is the joke. <laughs> um, and they thought that was probably too edgy for the Victorian era. So they, so he rewrote it basically. Um, anyway, so okay. I just thought that was uh, it's funny. It's been so a he, while since I've seen that one. I have seen that one, but uh, yeah, he's um, Asimov was a huge Gilbert. We got lots of people who are Gilbert and Sullivan. Fans. Aaron Sorkin is a huge Gilbert and Sullivan fan, as you would oh, know yeah. if you've seen the West yeah. Wing. I know we don't like Aaron Sorkin. I agree, <laughs> but you can see it in his dialogue. I've seen and very his, little uh, Aaron Sorkin stuff, but yeah. Well, he has he has a whole uh, in the West Wing. There's a whole bit where they riff on Gilbert and Sullivan. You know, like those hip. Yeah, I, I saw uh, a link where people uh, list off their credentials, and 
um, like on multiple shows and with and I never never sing at sea. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like he keeps reusing that dialogue. Yeah, on yeah. Different shows with different characters. Yeah, yeah. He uh, did that in he did that in uh, in uh, yeah one of the movies he wrote. Yeah, exactly. So it's um, it's definitely like it's one of those things where it's not huge in pop culture except as you say the cartoons referencing the major general song and things but all the sort of hip kids love gilbert and sullivan even all not, not all the hip kids all the nerdy writers and hmm. and creators are still in awe of gilbert and sullivan these low these many years later i would say yeah uh i mean animaniacs uh i i remember on one of the dvd things and they said uh uh, it was just because Paul Rugg, I think, was the writer of that episode, and he just loves Gilbert and Sullivan, and he wanted to make an episode about it. And the joke, you know, right. kids love Gilbert and Sullivan, but I did. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> probably because some of that people episode, do, but yeah, we we all have uh, we all have nerds things that some of us are nerds and we're attached to something that's way out of date. Like I think almost everyone <laughs> who's a nerd has something that like people don't take seriously anymore. Or they don't widely get obsessed over and if they did they'd be considered huge nerds but it's out there you know mm -hmm. um yeah so this book it was written by uh ws gilbert's father um who uh reading about it it was pretty interesting um uh his whole life was sort of seemed to be based around um uh support for the poor he wasn't poor himself but um uh he strongly believed in um that um it was um, poverty and alcohol that caused crime rather than, um, um, you know, breeding, okay. as was the common thing. Sorry, are we talking about um, uh, Gilbert Jr. or Gilbert Sr. here? Senior. Okay, senior. senior. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, he was apparently uh, was uh, uh, did uh, work for the East India Company early in his life, but he quit because he was appalled by what was huh. going on. Good on him. Yeah. Um, so uh, he was, he wouldn't, he was, he, was he like a socialist per se, or just? Uh, I, I don't think adjacent. he was a socialist. Um, he was just very charitable. I so, think. so he was kind of a Dickensian. That's, that sounds like Charles Dickens yeah. too. He was in that. Yeah, general. I think he was, he was in Dickens' um, <clears throat> general milieu. Right. Okay. Well, good on him. Um, and yeah. yeah, he sounds, uh, and he seems to have had some kind of Navy career too, if I, if I'm, if I understand correctly. Uh, um. Which might actually have inspired stuff like stuff well, like Pinafore um, and stuff. I mean, he was a midshipman with the East India Company uh, at, right. when he was young. Uh, but no, he was mostly a, a writer. No, uh, he was a Royal Navy. He was a Royal Navy surgeon. William oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So Royal he did College of Surgeon. Yeah, okay, he was yeah. A, no, you're right. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so okay, th that clearly inspired uh, some of Gilbert Junior's uh, stuff. Obviously, if his dad oh yeah. Was in the Navy. Uh, um, that makes sense, um, because a lot, you know, obviously HMS Pinafore and, uh, to a lesser extent, Pirates of Penzance, which doesn't have any actual Navy stuff in it, but like I <laughs> said, you know. Yeah, it is funny that it's pirates being hunted by the police in that, in the, yeah. which is part of the silliness, obviously, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Um, and, uh, a major general and the police answer to the major general for some <laughs> reason. Yeah. Well, isn't it supposed to be like a small island colony or something? Yeah. And they yeah. Can, yeah. So yeah. that, that actually is probably truer to life than you might think, but yeah. Okay. Anyway. And also he's like incompetent. So of course. by his very admission. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Uh, anyway, uh, we've got to do a little break for a commercial uh, or two. And uh, when we get back, we'll start discussing uh, the actual subject of this podcast, the Inominato, the Wizard of the Mountain. So in the meantime, please enjoy these products or services, and we'll be right back on What Mad Universe. Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO, Editor-in-Chief, over there at ShackNews.com. Give a listen to the ShackCast, the official Shack News podcast of Shack News, uh, over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hey Lassie, what are you doing here? Timmy's in a well... Sequelcast 2 and Friends is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time, like Harry Potter, Hellraiser, and The Hobbit. And sometimes the hosts talk about video games and TV as well. And now it's part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Oh, Lassie, we don't need to rescue Timmy. He likes the well well enough, I guess. Darth Vader is Luke's father. Lassie, I told you to lay off the spoilers. Sounds like he wrote a bunch of these uh, short stories that were individually written, but then, of course, they were all collected together, and they were... Yeah. Uh, the uh, Inominato is a collection of uh, stories based around a... Uh, sort of revolving around a character named the Inominato, which is Italian for nameless, a um, 14th century uh, mysterious sorcerer who uh, takes a lot of... Um, who cares about the poor and uh, always wants to to help them in whatever way he can and punish the wicked. Um, and um, uh, the the stories are sort of um, usually somebody it, it sets up the situation and at some point somebody contacts the the anominato either uh, deceitfully or trying to um, or actually uh, genuinely looking for help. Right. Um, and uh, he intervenes in whatever way he can, usually by using a, giving them a magic object of some sort that sort of enchants things and right. um, sets things in motion, or cursing them. Or there's there's various uh, levels of um, uh, frivolity and horror. Like some of them are outright horror. In fact, I first um, encountered this um, uh, about ten years ago. Uh, I was, um, as I've mentioned, I, I tried to read every vampire story published within this period, and um, one of these stories is a vampire story, um, the uh, Last Lords of Gordnell, or Gardnell, um, which um, involves the uh, uh, an evil baron uh, who's um, after a uh, young Italian girl named, uh, well, it's all set in Italy, so they're all Italian, but a young girl named Teresa Biffy, and um, he, uh, but her father refuses to give her up because the Baron's notorious. So uh, the Baron has his men go and threaten the father, and it ends up killing the whole household. Um, but uh, the um, Baron's men uh, lie and say that the girl escaped. Uh, well, she they, he starts seeing the vision of the uh, the girl. The village uh, that the girl comes from uh, lies and says that the um, uh, the girl is under the um, protection of the Anominato. So uh, the Baron goes to the Anominato and threatens him, and the Anominato sends it says that this little bird will now have power over you because uh, 
um, whenever you think about uh, treachery or doing something bad, it'll show up and then something bad will happen to you. Um, and so that, that keeps happening. You know, he thinks about betraying something and an avalanche almost kills him, that sort of thing. Um, right. And um, But part of the uh, deal he made with the Illum with the Anominato was uh, that uh, the girl would show up um, and be his bride. And that happens. But uh, when it gets to night, uh, she turns into a hideous corpse with glowing phosphorus eyes who sucks his blood. And then he goes and tries to get her exercised and all this stuff, and he runs away. And um, uh, she tracks him down and ends up killing him. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, yeah, and I actually did a portrait of uh, of Teresa Biffy. It was kind of hard figuring out how to, out how to do one image with uh, somebody who turns into a corpse at night, which is an interesting take on vampires. The idea that they're it'd be a beautiful woman by day, but a hideous corpse at night. That's right. sort of an interesting take on the whole. Right, as always, thing. it's 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 sort of disagreement about vampires over what happens day versus night but it's always something changes at night <laughs> to make a vampire usually a yeah. monster versus you know like so some of them can yeah. run around in the daytime but they yeah exactly and she's and um, he never says does he i can't remember in this story do they actually call her a vampire or is it just, yeah they do yeah they, they call her a vampire a few times yeah okay so yeah. uh and but there are a lot of stories around this time where Something's clearly a vampire, but they don't use the word. In this case, they do, but mm -mm. That, that's a common thing where you know right. a corpse comes back to life and drinks blood, but they don't say the word vampire. Now, it's I can't weird. remember in that story. Do they imply that the Anominato brought her back, or do they just? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's. Um, uh, they at least imply it. I think they pretty much outright say it. So I yeah. mean, he's he's she, the source of all the supernatural stuff in these stories, so you kind yeah. of draw that conclusion. And, there, and there's another story where a. Um, uh, he ends up cursing a uh, man um, who had kidnapped a child um, to uh, want, uh, after he dies, his ghost is sort of uh, compelled to want to bring the child home. So he sort of haunts, um, haunts the child and eventually um, drives him to a situation where he can go back to his natural parents. Right. Um, so the Anominato does engage in necromancy. As we see in his origin, that's sort of connected with it. Yeah, that's interesting because yeah. Anyway, yeah, he's well. That that's like the the opening, it, the introduction is a you know a frame story about a guy, some guy. I don't know if they ever describe who this, this narrator is. Uh, I but assumed he, it was supposed to be Gilbert himself, right? But, uh, but he just that's talks often how they sure, yeah yeah. But anyway, he just sort of says, "Oh yeah, I discovered." folkloric tales during my journeys in italy he could have <laughs> this is actually uh, i wasn't the world's biggest fan of these stories uh there were parts that i liked and i liked the two part the big final which is about the anominato himself I, yeah. that's the most interesting part uh there's a fair amount of could you have told that story in you know a couple of pages whereas you went no, no, on i i fully agree <laughs> it's it's a lot of drawn out stuff and a lot of um um, repeating information we already know. Yeah, um, and and for that, for the twists and things and and clever riffs that we get, it's not always worth the long uh, discursive stuff. Um, yeah, but just going back to the so yeah, so the opening thing he he frames it as yeah, I, I dug up these folkloric tales in uh, 
in my journeys through uh, Italy, and and uh, I now present them to you, dear reader, because a you know a local priest had them or whatever, and um, it does frame it as it's framed as a uh, as a you know a store a, a collection of real uh, you know real uh, stories, folk tales. real folk tales from Italy, and I think that was you know that era for centuries in England, I think it, it's interesting, like Shakespeare does it as well. Italy is always used as kind of the land of enchantment where fantas- mm-hmm. fantastical things happen, right? Um, like in, in Midsummer Night's Dream is set in Italy and a lot of Shakespeare's sort of more fantastical stuff, they kind of say, yeah, Italy. Even though, you know, it was Italy, people knew Wait, it existed. Is Midsummer Night's Dream set in Athens? Uh, oh, maybe Midsummer Night's... Uh, is it? Yeah, I, I want Athenians. Okay, well, isn't... Okay, so isn't Prospero Italian? Anyway, there's a yeah, lot of... Yeah, Prospero is Italian. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Duke of Milan. Yeah, they tend to... And even Romeo and Juliet. I mean, it's a way of making something exotic without, you know, yeah. completely setting it in, you know, the Arabian Nights or something like that. Uh, that was a go-to move for a lot of fantasy writers right up until the, the 20th century. Um, although, of course, the Arabian Nights or ancient China were also popular venues for original folktales. Um, so that does this here as well. Uh, and but, that's a cu- cross-cultural thing. A lot of cultures do that. Like a lot of the Arabian Nights stories, say Aladdin, is set in China because it's a far-off place. Right, right. That too. Yeah, exactly. The far-off place where we we know a little bit about, but enough that we can pretend fantasy things happen there. And yeah, maybe a lot of Russian fairy tales have the uh, the thrice nine or the thrice nine lands and the thrice tenth kingdom, something like that. Mm. Yeah. That, okay. That's this common setting for the fairy tales, and that's. It's, I don't think it's clear on what exactly that means, but it's just sort of a common. It's like um, a right. once upon a time standard opening thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or even say like to the point where some people have gone on to say that, you know, fairyland is the setting for every fairy tale, and it's not even Earth or whatever. It's a, it's a fantasy yeah. realm. That they kind of, you know, people like Neil Gaiman have kind of done that, where they they kind of imply that. You know, oh yeah, all the fairy tales are set in this one magical. And then, of course, you know, modern animated movies do something similar too. Sometimes they Shrek, say, yeah, Shrek, kind of, yeah, exactly. Shrek, Shrek is doing a ridiculous version of it, but it's that that is the common. I think the term is uh, in Germany they call it Märchenland, which just means you know fairyland. But it's the just uh, a fantastical setting. So that's this too, and of course, don't forget that at the time, even at the time when Gilbert was writing, Italy wasn't uh, actually a country; <laughs> it was uh, a series of provinces and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. So it, you know, again, you could kind of squeeze in a fantasy. Uh, although there's no made-up places in this book, I don't think, but you could, if you wanted to, pretend that there's a province in Italy or a made-up town, and and people would just accept. Not that you don't do that with a lot of other s- stories, anyway. But um, it was a it was a a place full of weirdness basically and yeah I, I, and also like um the mikado is this as well like you you're commenting on england by using a foreign setting and they chose japan because mm-hmm. um yeah. england didn't really know a lot about japan at the time so well it's, uh, the irony is that i think that at that time there had been a big japanese uh exhibition yeah, yeah, at that's the Royal what, Museum. yeah that, that's that's what inspired it yeah but it was still right. very exoticized oh of course yeah the average person wouldn't know anything about japan but it it shows that they actually you know gilbert and sullivan and 
the the learned people were actually starting to learn a lot about Japan, and it was an opportunity yeah, to kind of. But it, it's through a certain of orientalist course. lens and all. Oh, anyway. needless to say, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, so so it is. Uh, the stories are really interesting in that, or they're it, it's it's very consistent in the setting. It's like something's happening. Somebody's got a problem, often with their love life, or maybe in the case of the the villainous stories, that someone did something bad and. The, you know the walls are closing in and they need help escaping or somebody you know is in love with someone else and they need help to win the 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 person they're in love with that's or they the, just want to run a scam of some sort yeah yeah well yeah it's and it is interesting that it absolutely does go back and forth like either it's a virtuous person there's a virtuous person and then there's a malicious person like almost one to, to one to one uh and they go mm. to see the anominato and the anominato always has their number right from the start yeah um, and he'll help well he's an astrologer so he like sees their stars and all that right right yeah he does he's never really fooled but and then it's always like okay well here's a thing that will help you and it of course it's a thing that no matter how evil they were it would have helped them but they're unable to follow because he always gives them elaborate terms to follow which is the classic yeah. fairy tale thing of you know well water this plant thrice under the moonlight or whatever or he, he likes magic purses that give out gold which always come with conditions and that the evil people are not able to follow because they get greedy or for whatever reason in the first story it's a guy who who can't his he's been given a, an extra century of life and a gold purse full of money and he's told reach into the purse and anytime you reach out you'll take out money as much money as you need but you have to donate half of it to an orphanage and every time you don't do that we're going to cut the hunt, the extra century of life you got in half. And um, that was actually one of the more yeah. clever stories because he, you, you see him just stupidly taking out as much money as he wants. And you're like, what are you doing guy? Like you're just, a, you're just taking out money and ignoring the condition of, of helping the orphans. But then when uh, the Anominata servant, who is probably the Anominata himself in disguise, as far as we can tell, uh, shows up and says, well, what are you doing? <laughs> You're wasting your life. And he's like, aha, but didn't you know, science has told us that there's no such thing as, you know, uh, a, a, a unit of time. This is his rationale. And uh, therefore, if there's no unit of time, you can't cut time in half. He basically uses Zeno's paradox on him. Yeah, yeah, it was, it's Zeno's paradox. Like, if you, if you cut my life in half and then cut it in half more and more and more, you'll never reach the bottom because it's always half. Right. So, ergo, this this deal doesn't mean anything, and I can pocket as much money as I want. Haha, get out of there. And I don't remember, if the, does the Anominato actually, like, counter that with actual logic, or does he just say, no, you're an idiot, die? Uh, <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> um, yeah, I do remember it, it ends with him uh, aging rapidly and dying at the right. end. So, um, I think he gets trapped in a cell. Like, he gets... Um, yeah, he's he's thrown in jail. Oh yeah, yeah. Somebody uh, takes away the purse, so he's he runs out of everything. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, it's it's uh. So that was a, that was a bit clever. It's like at least he had he had a rationale for doing it because it, even in uh, I guess this was 1867. These yeah. were written somewhere. Well, um, they were compiled then, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even then, that kind of story would have been old hat. Of course, that's a that's that's a classic fairy tale kind of setup. Um, and uh, so, you know, he has to have some kind of wrinkle on it to tell that story. And it turns out he did. Um, a lot of the others are fairly straightforward morality tales uh, that yeah, are much um, more complex. It, it than... actually sort of reminded me of uh, 
the MST3K episode about uh, Merlin's Shop of Mystic Wonders. <laughs> yeah, right. Just in that it's it's um, like a Tales from the Crypt sort of thing, but with a framing device of a kindly white bearded wizard. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a hundred percent. It's it's the kind of thing that eventually mutated into Tales from the Crypt. Uh, Tales from the Crypt, actually, it might be worth mentioning. Uh, that was a lot of the Tales from the Crypt episodes were riffs. We last. Uh, episode we talked about Ray Bradbury and uh, they often just ripped straight from Ray Bradbury uh, another guy they ripped from a lot was a guy called James Thurber who wrote short stories uh, that had uh, you know uh, this kind of morality tale with a twist um, they did the and of po course a couple times too right who Edgar Allan Poe yeah uh, I I don't think they straight up ripped from him because he's too well known to just steal his stuff. Um, I think it was really, a case they didn't of like do follow the House of Usher or anything like that. Well, maybe they did, but I I think it was like because he would be public domain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they, I mean they probably and of course Edgar Allan Poe's another and then O. Henry's another one uh, who uh, who ha- he was known for his twist endings and so forth, and those all sort of evolved. So you can see that continuum, and this is you know, an earlier version of that. Um, this isn't quite as heavy on the twist, but it does have the sort of morality tale where it catches yeah. up. But it, it, it actually... Yeah, it's way too much setup in all these stories. It's it's too much <laughs> yeah. too much putting things in place and then for the inevitable conclusion. Uh, in most of them. Yeah. Some of them are, are a little more interesting. But um, I think that's that's a really big flaw of this, that they um, um, there's just a lot of explaining... Right. And it usually gets more interesting when the person in question is virtuous, because then you know it's not going to be, they're going to be hoisted by their own petard. It's it's going to be, there has to be something a little more interesting than just, I'm a good person, help me, Anominato. The Anominato helps them, the end. Like, yeah. that's, they've got to put some kind of tweak on it. Uh, like the lady who uh, wants her lover to return, and uh, so she plants a, a plant that's going to show her whether her lover is doing well or, or poorly. Based on yeah, so the, the plant will um, like gain leaves when the lover's doing well, and um, as soon as he's going to come, he, uh, it'll a flower will bloom. But uh, she ends up falling on it and crushing it, and that signals doom for. Uh, no, she doesn't fall on it. Uh, I think it was the flood that wipes it out, uh, and it happens at the same time that the uh, that her, I thought, her she lover... fall- I thought she fell on it. Oh, was she responsible for it? I may, I may have misread that. No, it was that. an I... accidental thing, but she did fall on it, I believe. Right, and so, she, oh, okay, so she's the one who killed her lover inadvertently then by destroying the plant because it's, mm-hmm. they're they're tied together. But then, of course, it what happens is it it grows and uh, she starts to sicken and die, and then the plant blooms, and it's because she's going to see him again in heaven, right? And, yeah, and that's that's the ending. Um, yeah, that one's th- that, that's pretty dark, actually. It is, but it's a clever ending. That's yeah. A, it's a it, it the, the the stories are very uh very uh religious. They're 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 they tend to uh you know ha- go with uh, Christian moral. Well, as, specifically as Catholic. I mean, it was 14th century, but it it has but, a lot but of Gilbert, lines against Gilbert. Gilbert wouldn't have been Catholic. Yeah, but no, Gilbert I don't wouldn't think he was terribly religious either. It's... Right. I think I think it was sort of well, I mean, it's like how Oscar Wilde wrote very religious stories, very moralistic stories. And it wasn't it wasn't ju- I mean, not that he wa- he was a bad guy, but he you know, he knew that's what the audience wanted. Right. Yeah. Like and I gonna... think in this case, it's also because uh, it fits the setting and the, the sort of framework that these are genuine folk tales from um, 
from the 14th century, you know, sort right, of right. You'd have to work in that stuff or else. Well, but know. but I think the Victorian era audience also expected it to an ex- to extent. I think that Yeah, was... but not the specifically Catholic stuff. Yeah, I I mean I don't think there's any I actually don't think it's that specifically Catholic. I think it just goes in for basic uh, standard Christian morality. I mean I, I say yeah, that it, I it, guess as a There's a lot about the Catholic hierarchy um in the church and a lot about um uh, there's even some lines against Protestantism, you know. Mm, I guess that's fair. Uh yeah, they do they But I mean at at the root the actual thing they're discussing is is morality and it, it, i mean yeah. that is one of the more interesting things about the story is that it isn't in many of them they're they are trying to explore morality and the big final story is actually to me kind of an interesting uh, exploration of morality with the anominato connected to the gilbert and sullivan thing um the stories actually are kind of similar in a way like with the um uh complex interrelationships you know like a, a lot of setup and stuff and um putting these uh, different scenarios against each other and it's all a bunch of coincidences pile up and lead, lead to certain things. It does right, remind right, me of right. the plays in a lot of ways, except those are handled a little bit more cleverly and the songs help to uh, explain a lot of the um, uh, backstories and things. You know, they do it through songs, so that yeah. makes it more entertaining. So. Yeah, that's that. That is funny. It's almost like this is kind of a warm up for Gilbert and Sullivan, and then Gilbert and Sullivan does it as you know pure comedy, whereas this is you know taken a little more seriously as it's presented. But yeah, yeah. Uh, and also there's there's one story where um, uh, it, it's all about a, a flower that keeps going from person to person and ends up uh, bringing people together. And I thought that was interesting. It reminded me of um, uh, I don't know, like a sitcom plot or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that. Yeah, I mean sitcoms in some ways are descended from this mode of storytelling. Uh, in a in a way, I mean, even though they're not. Uh, I, and I'm talking here about the Anominato, but also Gilbert and Sullivan, of course. Yeah. So, but but yeah, you could uh, since you have to assume his own dad was an influence on Gilbert, uh, <laughs> that you can see you can trace a you know a, a line of and, uh, and certainly of the. Um... There. The idea that they um, uh, respect, um, you know, sort of make fun of class uh, hierarchies and things. That's that's a right. common part of Gilbert and Sullivan plays, sort of poking fun at the class systems right. and the, the hierarchies in England. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, definitely um, more of a focus on uh, poverty and stuff in, uh, in Gilbert Sr.'s work. But uh, I, I think a lot of that sort of empathy for for the downtrodden shines through yeah. in the plays as well. It's possible another reason he had them in Italy, he could make fun of the Catholic church and not be, you know, chastised to, to writing for an English yeah, audience. Yeah, because right? a, lot of the, a lot of the priests are crooked in this. Yeah. And um, I mean, there's good, there's good priests and monks yeah. in this as well, but it's, and ultimately the church is generally seen as a good thing, but it's, uh, yeah, there, he's not afraid to make a monk a, either a fool or a villain in these yeah, stories. Yeah, and it actually it goes be. against the Hayes Code that would later develop in Hollywood where you can't show a, a religious authority as evil. Hmm. Yeah, and of course Hayes, if I'm not mistaken, was Catholic himself, so that would make okay, a certain yeah. amount of sense as well. Yeah. But um, anyway, so yeah, just tell the, tell the story, if you would, uh, of uh, the yeah, Nominato so, um, and his backstory. It, it, the, the third last story, uh, the, the Confession of the Nominato is a two-parter. There's lots of sort of longer ones in this are split up in two um 
the third last one is um, features the Anominado sort of dying, um, and um, he gives his um, last confession in writing. And uh, the last two chapters are this confession, and it uh, it goes through uh, his life and um, um, uh, basically he makes a deal with the devil. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a Faustian bargain. But it yeah. plays out a little interestingly to me. He's he's a he's a guy who you know he's told by his dad he's a member of a of a wealthy family and they're said you know you've got to pick a career son. He doesn't like most of the careers that are on offer, but he says oh I'd like to pursue medicine. His father says no, you can't pursue medicine for some reason. I don't know. Uh, I guess maybe that wasn't was, seen yeah. as it was a class but, thing. I think yeah, I, I, which is f funny to think, but yeah, that's probably true. That was kind of a that's not like a middle suitable. class thing. Um, yeah. Or at the time, it yeah, would have been I, the, the growing or the emerging middle class rather than the um, right the upper class who don't who aren't supposed to do that kind of work. Yeah, it's it, yeah. Of course, they wouldn't have had sophisticated <laughs> medical technology, so it would have been leechcraft. You can't <laughs> study leechcraft anyway. But he does say the church is a suitable uh, place to go to, and um, the church. Uh, and he's and he, his dad basically goes, "Well, you go into the church and you can study the sciences while in the church." So the Anabnado does that. Um, he falls in eventually with a guy called uh, Mal he meets a guy named Malatesta, who uh, who. He who's kind of a pr proto anominado, uh, in that he's a sorcerer or, well, he's a spirit. Of course, everyone. Well, no, well, that's eventually revealed. But at the time, everyone's kind of like, well, they say he's an necromancer. They say he's a he's a an a astrologer, which apparently is not seen as bad. Which is weird because I thought astrologers were um, generally seen as evil in the church uh, uh, teachings. But it varies. Um, like uh, John Dee had a high position in English society. He was an, an astrologer. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think I'm just I'm thinking it because I know Dante had astrologers in hell. If I'm not uh, mistaken, I think I, yeah, I think uh, probably uh, opinions were mixed at various points, but yeah, it went back and forth. But, <laughs> but hey, it's and I it's think useful, there are so it's okay. There are like um, things in the Bible against it, but also the um, uh, the magi who visit Jesus right. for following a star, and that's astrology. You know, it's. Yeah, oh, good point. Yeah, that's right. And of course, astronomy and, ast as with alchemy and chemistry, astronomy and astrology were kind of bound up together as, as uh, you know, it was like legitimate science versus something that had you consorting with demons or whatever. Mm. Um, but uh, anyway, so he he uh, he meets this, this guy who everyone kind of has dark whisperings about, but he seems like a decent enough guy, and he sort of presents all this interesting uh, knowledge, which you know, eventually lures away the uh, nominato into uh, studying more and more scientific stuff and away from his church studies. And uh, then he eventually falls in love, which it's more or less flat out stated that Malatesta sets up uh, sets him up with a girl so that he'll leave the church and get married instead, even though the girl herself is very nice um, and, and innocent. Um, and finally, he basically says, well, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to leave all my all my knowledge, all my books, all my, all my secret wisdom to you. Um, but you have to, you know, forswear religion basically. And the, Anonimato, the Anonimato kind of does, he, there's a few steps to the process. At one point he says, well, you know, he leaves the church anyway. And, um, he starts, you know, studying all this stuff, but then he starts to find, and he's the whole time he's been, well, I can use this to do good to, for the benefit of mankind. I can use both my wealth and my knowledge. 
uh, to benefit mankind. I want to do good works. I don't want to renounce the church, but I'm leaving it. Um, and But then he starts to find that he doesn't basically, he becomes emotionally inert. Uh, his wife suddenly takes ill and dies, and he feels nothing. He's He keeps doing good works and helping people, but it, he gets nothing out of it. He doesn't feel good at all about helping people. Um, and finally, Malatesta kind of reveals himself to the devil and says, okay, you got to make the next step and, you know, sign on with the devil and, yeah, and you'll I'll, get ultimate wisdom. Yeah, and I'll bring back your emotions, basically. Right. He says, yeah, you'll feel pleasure as much as you want, uh, but, you know, you won't, but I've taken it away from you, uh, you know, it good work. And, and as they flat out says at the end, you know, that's that's something you get from God and leaving leaving the church and doing good works, but not accepting the church will never bring you happiness, basically. And and the Inominato says, well, screw you, I'm not going to join with the devil. So he, he rejects the Faustian bargain, which is, of course, unusual in a fairy tale for someone to actually say, no, I won't side with the devil. Uh, but he's stuck at a point where he's, you know, a magician with all these abilities, and he's lost the ability to take pleasure from doing good works, but he's going to keep doing good works anyway just to say, up yours to the devil, basically, which I kind of find funny. Yeah, and, um, well, not not so just been, up yours, though. Like, there is a um, a sense of righteousness in his... Right, right, right. Like, he thinks it's yeah. a good thing to do works, even if he doesn't personally get an even satisfaction out of it. Yeah, it's it's a bit of an atonement in some ways, even though he was already compelled to do that. But it's it's also kind of... And it's him, like, of course, when you meet the devil... You, your thinking on religion is going to change a bit. Like I always, I always find it funny in stories where like the devil appears to sell someone's soul, and it's just like, dude, if the devil showed up and said, you know, I'm not religious. If the devil showed up and said, here, uh, do this, and I'll give you ultimate power just and change my soul, I'd be like, no, and thanks for proving the existence of God, and that I should <laughs> do all the good things well, that, that I uh, was maybe not as impelled to do. Until not now. necessarily, but it, it puts a lot of evidence in that camp. Exactly, I mean, yeah. It that's... could be in a universe where the devil exists, but God doesn't, but, you know. Right, yeah. Well, they, I, I mean, there a few things have done that. Uh, of all things, uh, the movie uh, From Dusk Till Dawn has that argument where he says, look, we're, we're facing evil from hell, so you got to get over your doubt in the existence of God because <laughs> clearly he does exist. So, because there's, because there's demons here. So, yeah, and there's and been a few other things like burn that. Them and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I've seen a few other people say that. And, it, and there's also the argument that, like, um, if you start seeing miracles and fantastical and supernatural stuff, it's actually, you know, disappointing to someone who's religious because it's like, well, it's great. Now you believe in God because you saw evidence that he exists, but it would have been better if you just believed in him without overt evidence. That's actually well, not as... Yeah, that's also uh, the Babelfish thing from Hitchhiker's Guide. <laughs> yeah, that, there's that as well. <laughs> solid evidence of God just proves his existence because he, Ex without faith he's nothing, so something yeah, exactly. that proves his existence destroys him in a puff of logic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then man gets killed at the next zebra crossing. But <laughs> yeah, after um, yeah no, that's is white. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but the, yeah, that's always an interesting uh, argument to me, and that's that's where it gets. So the book ends on an interesting note that it goes into that direction. Um, so, so I do. I always do find the Faustian bargain interesting if they mm -hmm. if if you put wrinkles on it, which in this case they do. Um, so that, you know, that's, that, that ends the book on a high note and I did enjoy that. And that, that's where you see the most Gilbert and Sullivan E to me, uh, train of thought, even though, again, it's very serious and it's very solemn, but that's the kind of logic they do employ in their, in their, in their, uh, in their stories, in their, their operas as well. Yeah. So. Uh, and usually, uh, a bunch of, you know, 
logical um, explanations at the end that, that fixes all the problems. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Uh, I, always... I think I mentioned this uh, on another episode, but Radigor ends with the um, uh, everybody in this uh, uh, baronet line has to commit a um, heinous act every day, and but at the end, all, all the ghosts are are gathered together and they're convinced that uh, because not committing a heinous heinous act is an act of suicide, um, and that itself is a heinous act then none of them have right. actually died, so they're all still alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even though like, some yeah, of them that, are like, that's... clearly historical figures. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It's, which is funny. It, and it is funny that, again, the first story in this book is someone trying to logic his way out of a, you know, not a devil's bargain, but of a, a condition, you know, a moral condition. Um, and that doesn't work, but you know, it, it is very satisfying when you riff on in, in those kind of terms. Yeah. I love those, those kinds uh, of stories. Uh, I, I would not necessarily recommend this as a whole, but maybe dip in to some of the shorter stories or something like that if you're yeah. interested. Uh, I would say I, read the last three, well, four with a conclusion uh, stories. And that, but yeah. in and of itself, that's the best part of the book. So. Yeah, I, I would agree. And it, it's, it's interesting that he's sort of a small, like, um, a minor but key character in all the other stories, but there he becomes the focus. Yeah, he's like the the, the king in yellow in uh, those stories. He's, he's yeah. just an incidental thing that affects the story. And we still so never really learn his a... name, which is also interesting. Yeah, well, he is the Anominato. You can, yeah. you, by definition, <laughs> you're never going to learn his name. Well, so. yeah. well, it's time we wrap this up with our closing musical number where all the characters get paired up and married. Yes. Uh, we are, as always, Philip Rice, the very model of a modern major general, and Adam Prosser, who has information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. Uh, we thank once again Alex Ross, our producer and engineer, who understands equations both simple and quadratical. And our theme song was by Jack Furyk, who can hum a fugue of which he's heard the music's dinner for and whistle all the airs from that inferno nonsense pinafore. <laughs> Yes. Uh, just a reminder uh, that we both have a Patreon. Uh, uh, so uh, if you want to help us support the show uh, at What Mad Universe, uh, you can subscribe to either myself or to Phil's uh, to listen to this podcast early every time we do it, uh, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and also illustrations, comics, and writings. Um, we uh, are at Patreon under uh, Philip Rice with one L or Adam Prosser with two S's or neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, you can also follow us, follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or Spear Hafok with an F underscore for Philip. Uh, and uh, I, I would like to apologize for the lateness on this episode. I was having headache issues and eye aches and it was hard getting reading, which is it was hard getting reading done, which is not great for when you have a book podcast. So, yeah. um, hopefully <laughs> no that that's, that seems to be clearing up. So hopefully there won't be any more delays. Uh, but until next time, uh, hello, it's goodbye. No, no, wait, wait, wait. wait it's, that... uh, it's Gilbert O'Sullivan. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so long, farewell. Of Weider send goodbye. No, 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 no. no, no. That's Rogers and Rogers and Hammerstein. Uh, I better just cut this off. Uh, so long, folks. <laughs> Thank you.